I'm Lisa Bryant. I'm Leanne Gibbs. And I'm Liam McNicholas. And this is the Early Education Show. A fortnightly look at the policy, politics and practice of Australia's early education sector. Lisa, Leanne and I are taking a break, but we still have a new episode this fortnight, which we're really excited about. Regular listeners of the show will know that Leanne now works for the University of Wollongong Early Start Program and is doing some really incredible work there around translating all of the amazing research into the early education sector into practice. Uh, Leanne and the University of Wollongong and the Early Start team have been really generous in sharing uh, what we're going to be sharing with you for this episode. Uh, over the past few months, uh, particularly during this uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, Leanne has been interviewing a range of experts in the early childhood sector talking about particular topics. They're really fantastic videos. I really strongly recommend them uh, to everyone. So make sure you check out the, the show notes for today's episode. And, and check them all out. Um, but we're going to share three of them. They're all about 15 to 20 minutes long, uh, and Leanne has personally curated three of the ones she thinks are the most interesting, and I think you'll all agree. Um, so thanks again to UOW Early Start and all the speakers. Who we'll be hearing from today is Dr. Gay Lindsay on Children and the Arts, Associate Professor Catherine Nielsen-Hewitt and Professor Mark DeRosnay on how to support children's emotions when the world is changing, and Dr Lynn Cronin on school transitions during COVID-19. I really hope you enjoy these conversations. Once you finish them, uh, you won't be able to help yourself, but make sure you head over to Early Start's page, uh, not only to, just to, to check out these videos, but they're also doing a whole range of really incredible work. Uh, big congrats to Leanne and the team there. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a page I'm regularly checking out. But please enjoy these conversations, and we'll probably be back with our normal banter uh, in a couple of weeks. Today we're talking with Dr. Gay Lindsay, who is lecturer in the Early Years Program. And I'm really excited about this conversation because we're going to be talking about children and the arts. So your studies have been in children and the arts. So can you tell us a little bit about your research? Sure, sure. So my focus was really on visual arts in early childhood. And the reason I focused on that was because I taught preschool for more than 20 years before I decided to do some research. Um, and as a practitioner, I constantly was amazed at what I was seeing in practice. So people would say the arts were important without a doubt, and I could see that visual arts were part of the everyday curriculum in the early childhood um, context, but at the same time educators were saying that they weren't artistic, that they didn't know what to do, and that when I would visit centres, um, in, in the area, because I, I used to do a lot of visiting of other centres and colleagues, as well as part of um, some work I did with another organisation. And I just used to see very stencil-oriented work up on the walls. And so I could sense that there was a real disconnect. And um, after I'd gone to Reggio Emilia in 2008 for a conference there, um, that's an approach in Italy that has a very strong visual arts um, basis to their work with young children, I was really convinced that practice was being influenced not so much by what people were learning in their studies, uh, either at TAFE or at university, but by their own lack of confidence to, to express themselves at, um, in the visual arts. And so that lack of what we call self-efficacy um, in the research world 
then had a direct impact on what children were experiencing and also what they were missing out on. And so mm. that's what I investigated was the beliefs and self-efficacy of early childhood teachers and educators. And so then in the context of thinking about this with families as adults who might be engaging in the arts, let's um, think about what is it, what, what do you describe as the arts or for example creativity? So for me creativity um, and the arts are connected for sure but they're not the same. Mm -hmm. So we can be creative in any domain. We can be creative um, in science, in mathematics, in, in our you know, language, in so many ways, engineering. So all those STEM um, curriculum areas are areas that we're encouraging people to be creative. Um, but a lot of people make the false assumption that creativity is really tied to the arts and particularly the visual arts. Um, so people align them very powerfully. I like to see that the arts um, as a bigger domain are all of those things like music and movement and drama and the visual arts um, and literature to a degree as well fits within that arts paradigm. Um, and we can be creative in all of those domains of the arts as well. But my feeling is that the arts should be integrated right across the curriculum. So instead of saying we're doing arts as an activity on a Friday afternoon when we've sort of turned our brains off for the week, we should be doing arts as part of science exploration, as part of engineering, as part of maths. Um, and so when we integrate the arts, then my perception is that we're being fully human. Human beings, and especially, you know, in, in times of pandemic, but also all the time, the arts are what keep our, um, our humanity alive. They're what make us sing. They're what human beings do when they're looking for leisure time. Um, so I think it's a real shame when people compartmentalise children's learning mm. um, rather than treating it as this wonderful exploration of wonder with children. Yeah, because I think a lot of people will remember that Friday afternoons were either sport and if it was raining you got to do art. So I, it was, I know, you know, in that primary school years and also there were um, moments of stress as well in high school for people because they didn't feel confident as you said. So what is it about this confidence and um, why do people feel so unconfident in, in their exploration of the arts? I think there's a lot of misperceptions. Uh, let's talk visual arts because that's sort of what my focus has been. If people align, a lot of people align the ability to call themselves artistic with the capacity to draw realistically. And so if people don't feel that they can draw, then they will announce they're not artistic. Um, and unfortunately, because of the way our education system works, the arts are gradually um, diminished as, as students go through the schooling system. So often by the time our students come to me at university, they have not potentially done any visual arts work for 10 years. And what they remember of their early childhood visual arts experiences are those structured um, activities that they did at school. Ironically though, people express a real yearning uh, for making art. And if we look at what's happened during this time of pandemic, the arts have blossomed. They haven't been supported and, and you know lots of artists are struggling, but at the same time 
everyday people are connecting with the arts in ways they perhaps didn't have the time to do before. So there is a yearning in the human spirit to express ourselves visually. Mm. Um, and I'd like to challenge that idea that it's a Friday afternoon brainless activity because in fact artists are the great thinkers of, of society. Mm. They're the people who grapple with big questions and who reflect society back to the community. Mm. Um, they're asking the tricky questions about what's going on and what's my experience and how do I communicate that or how do I make sense of it. Um, so yeah, there's lots of complexities around the arts. So how mm. could, um, if families are thinking about how to incorporate the arts into their everyday, uh, first of all, um, how can uh, people feel more confident? Like, what can they do to grow in their confidence? They might have had those experiences mm. and feel like, well, I'm not artistic or whatever is the sorts of things that you're saying. How can, first of all, they, they grow in that confidence? I think the confidence comes by playing with materials, which we all love to do. So lots of people will doodle on the phone. You know, they're having a phone call, they'll be doodling on a notepad. That's mark making. And so we need to perhaps get away from that notion that drawing realistically is somehow the magic key that unlocks the ability to make art. Because art making, visual arts making, is playing and making marks. And that's all it needs to be, particularly for young children. It's a, I like to talk about it as a meeting with materials, that we can just play and explore the properties of those materials and just delight in the process. So it can be cognitive, but it can also be therapeutic. It can just be playful. Um, and so I think that's what I'd encourage families to do, is to get away from the idea that it has to be an end product that they would make. They don't need to go and look on Pinterest to work out how to make a frog. It would be, you know, say for example, if they wanted to draw or make a frog, um, say to their children, what do you know about frogs? Let's read some books about frogs. Let's watch a documentary on YouTube about frogs. And then talk children through um, re-presenting their ideas or their theories in a visual way, mm, yeah. um, in a symbolic way. I mean, really, cr expressing ourselves that way as human beings has happened since the dawn of time. Um, you know, people used to paint on caves to not only um, reflect what they were seeing around them, but to communicate to other people, but also to delight in beauty. So not all historic um, prehistoric art was functional. Sometimes it was actually about just delighting in the sparkle of a, of a rock or a beautiful bead or a, or a pattern woven into a basket or a cloth. So there's so many rich opportunities for families to just immerse themselves in the delight of art making. So there's an appreciation as well of, of um, what might be perceived as beauty or maybe it isn't. So how, how do you have a conversation with a child about what they're seeing? I think it's about just deconstructing what they're seeing. So to talk to them about what colours they see, what shapes can they see, um, what features do they notice, and then I think adults should um, make art alongside children mm -hmm. and with children. So it shouldn't necessarily be I'm standing back and observing you. Um, it's about partnering with children and letting them learn from your mistakes, your observations, so that it's just a playful, mm. enjoyable experience. It doesn't have to have an end. You know, to be successful, 
is to delight in the moment rather than to worry about what's going to be hanging on the fridge mm. at the end of, of the process. And it might be an appreciation of other senses as well, other, oh, other things that are incorporated in there as well. Yeah, so yeah. getting to the technical stuff, what sort of materials would you um, recommend would be around the home, simple materials that could create the opportunities for exploration of the arts. Yeah, well, it's limitless, really. And um, there are many shops that can provide us with this experience. Of course, of course. So, I mean, obviously, you can purchase all sorts of art materials online if you don't own any, but what I'd always encourage families to do is to choose materials that make a rich, meaningful mark. So when you're 18 months old, for example, the packet of pencils from the $2 shop doesn't actually make a great mark. So I'd be encouraging families to play with things like charcoal. And if you don't own charcoal, um, lots of families have wood burners. You can actually just get a bit of burnt wood and, and make marks with that and experiment with that. I've seen a lot of people during the pandemic times actually playing with um, using petals from flowers and, and hammering them and making marks with them between bits of fabric. I've seen people painting with tea and coffee. Uh, so you don't have to have art materials to make art. And if you've got cardboard boxes in the house, that is an endless supply of creative opportunity. Um, you can cut out cardboard and cut slits in it and use it for construction. You can make cubby houses and then paint the cubby house. I mean, you just really, there is no limit. Mm -hmm. So it's looking around in the environment for what's available rather than purchasing a whole Absolutely. You don't have to spend a lot of money to, to do some really exciting artwork mm. with children. And if, if you've got textures and felt pens, then they're great too, so mm. long as they're making a really rich mark. Mm. Often, you know, we need to imagine the frustration that children feel if they're given a yellow pencil and when they scratch it on the paper, it, it's barely visible. So we need to think about providing that rich mark-making opportunity so that children see that their actions have an impact mm. and that it's a satisfying impact. You know, there's a richness that comes when you can make a thick black mark mm. onto, a, onto a lovely big piece of paper. Mm. I'd also encourage using really big bits of paper if you can get your hands on them, even if that's just newspaper, rather than um, tinsy-wincy pieces, small pieces. So um, you've given some great tips already, but what would be your tips around um, having creative experiences at home in the visual arts, for example? I would just encourage families to have those materials available for children, um, to partner with their children and sit alongside them and just delight in the play. If you're looking for ideas of what to do, there is plenty online to, to search for, um, but it's about just taking the time and playing, I think, is the number one. Not worrying about an end product, not getting stuck in the idea um, that children just want to colour in the lines that other people have drawn, but that we really want to encourage them to develop confidence, to make meaning in their way and to have their voice be heard. That's sort of my number one agenda. Mm. And what about this um, balance between process and product? It's a really interesting... Because we all love looking at beautiful things that have of been course. made. And or... Yeah, and there mm. wouldn't be art galleries if human beings didn't delight in the product. Mm. Um, in my work, 
um, I drew upon a lot of the thinking by a philosopher called John Dewey, and, and he and another academic called Elliot Eisner talked a lot about process and product. There's a real risk in the common saying we hear that it's the process, not the product. My belief is that it's the process and the product, mm -hmm. and that when you use beautiful materials and processes, that actually um, gives the opportunity for a beautiful product. Mm. So it's a partnership between materials and outcomes um, that can really support children to know that their marks matter. Mm. Children care about the product. And so we should be paying attention to ensuring that, that what they create is valued mm. and beautiful. Mm. And what about as a final... Um, tip for people how to display artwork as well because we know that we sometimes can have multiple products from children sure. and how to display those in a in a lovely and respectful way at home or in any environment well i think the word you said there respect mm -hmm. is is the key so children won't always care about their end product but we need to value it because to me that end product actually tells us a lot about the process that children have undertaken. It's really their voice in visual form sometimes, it's their ideas. And so we need to be very careful not to devalue that product because it says a lot to children if we just scrunch it up and put it in the bin. How would we feel if mm. something we'd really worked on was just disregarded? So I like to encourage our early childhood teachers that I'm working with to think about how they can trim the edges and display it um, either on the fridge if that's where people love to put things. But I used to frame my own children's work and put it in pride of place in the home um, just to say your ideas matter, your thinking matters mm. and I really value what you've worked through there. Mm. That's a lovely way to finish. Thank you, Gay. All right, thanks. I'm Liz Mark-Rodan, who is Professor of Child Development at Early Start, and Catherine Nielsen here, who is Director of Pedagogical Leadership at Early Start as well. And we're going to be talking about how children are experiencing the current uh, crisis or catastrophe or difficulties around COVID-19, and also what educators and parents can do to support children in their uh, feelings that they may have around what's happening. So I'm going to ask both of you a question and you can decide who's going to answer that or you might want to answer both in your own ways. Um, what sorts of feelings are children having at this time around what is happening around them? Yeah, I think young children are particularly vulnerable at this time, partly because of their lack of understanding and their lack of coping skills, and I guess their dependency on adults. So a lot of their experiences of COVID-19 comes through their disruptions that they experience in terms of their relationships and, and their experiences in their environment. So disruptions that they're experiencing in relation to routines, so they might not get to go dancing or get to play with their friends, or the birthday party that they're about to go to is no longer on, or the availability of their parents emotionally. So I think as adults, we're, we're living with a, a level, certain level of uncertainty and stress and that impacts the way 
we interact with children and, and also our emotional availability. So they might not be experiencing it directly as we do, but they certainly experience it as, as a sense of loss. Mm. Just add a couple of things, sort of yeah. more through a developmental lens, uh, developmental psychology lens, is the, the children will are very good at picking up information vicariously. So children are looking for how we evaluate things all the time. And they use it to modify their own behaviours. So if we express you know, disgust at something, they'll be more cautious with that thing. If we express approval, they're more likely to you know, engage with that thing. And so a lot of kids will be hearing this topic often in a very uh, tense or fearful way. The tone will be one of fear. And what children do is they take that broader context to make an evaluation. So they'll be judging that this is something to be frightened of. This is something that's bad. So at the moment we've got like 24 hour news cycles of talking about COVID-19, for example, and we had the same with the bushfires. Mm. So what would be your recommendation around, I think that people want to be authentic with their children, um, whether you're an educator or whether you're a parent, people want to be authentic. How much exposure is uh, okay or yeah, I think that would be useful for people to understand what that looks like. Four-year-olds have an early developing sense of sickness and germs. They think of germs as, as living organisms that, that can do things, but they don't really understand how infection works, how disease works. Even where they have an idea that we have organs in our body, they don't really know where they are. Um, so they're building up knowledge of the world. And one of the most important and richest sources of that information for children is verbal interactions with people who they trust. And they don't build that information up quickly, they build it up slowly. So giving them permission to ask a question through our own behaviour, through our own verbal behaviour, listening to what they say, creating an environment where they can come back and clarify, engaging on the topic when the opportunity presents itself giving them the opportunity to come back again will help them on that journey of building up the knowledge that they will need to properly understand these things. But we have to accept this fact. Most four-year-olds will not understand COVID-19. Mm. Well, I don't think most adults can understand it. That's, That's true. That's true. Challenge. And mm. I suppose that does lead to that, that question before we go on to thinking about supporting children. How do adults, um, how can they regulate their own feelings? Because you say children are picking up those cues from them. So how can adults regulate those and, and ensure that they're kind of feeling, mm. I mean, no, we can't do that, but this is unknown for well, all we can. adults. We can, and uh, I learned this through some work I did years ago in terms of social anxiety. Mm. Now, it's very difficult for a person to control the anxiety that they have, but what people, especially around lots of areas, what people are quite good at, not always, but often, is regulating how they present themselves to their child. Right. So we can be conscious of, okay, when I'm interacting with my child about this, I need to slow down. I need to model more relaxed behavior. I need to listen. And I need to not overwhelm them with information. And those very concrete strategies, which you can even practice, actually they're sending those signals that this is an okay thing to talk about this is something that's not overwhelming. This is something that's not too frightening. And we've, we've seen that even parents who are highly anxious themselves, 
can use those strategies with their children and interactions with their children to reduce the anxiety in the interaction and to send much more positive messages about the world to children. And so that, that's a reasonably well evidence-based uh, reality. And it's something that we often talk about with educators. We talk about the power of the pause and just really slowing things down. And, it, and it's about wearing that very intentional lens and understanding that the way that you interact with your child directly impacts on their well-being yep. and their sense of security. So, and I think it's important to be reassuring to parents because these are anxious times, these are stressful times, and you absolutely need to tap into your own support networks and find people where you can have those conversations because those conversations are important to be had but not in front of children. So it's really about monitoring their level of exposure and when they are exposed to these kind of conversations to ensure that there is a consistent message. And that's particularly important for educators who are continuing to work with young children is that there is a consistent message given to children. So check with their parents, find out what kind of messages children have been given and make sure that you mirror those. Yeah. Can so, I just, just before we go, yeah. just jump in two very practical things. Um, one is uh, you can monitor yourself to see if you're catastrophizing. So catastrophizing is when you're going down that path of and then someone will die or something terrible will happen. If you're catastrophizing and you're, you're externalizing it, you're saying it, you have to wash your hands so that you don't get really, really, really sick, right? No, you wash your hands so that we don't spread this sickness to other people. So you put that in a kind of procedural, factual narrative, not in a catastrophic narrative. And, and that helps children think about the, the reality of what's going on, and it helps you change your own response. Um, the other thing that you can do is you can help children focus on other people. And that's a very, very powerful strategy. If you think about what empathy really is, empathy is where I start to concern myself with somebody else's position. And that's a very powerful thing to do with a child is to say, oh, we've got to make sure that Nan's all right, so let's make her some cookies, or let's make sure that we clean all the handles so she doesn't get sick. And a kid is more powerful then. They can act in the world. Mm -hmm. They can do good things. Mm -hmm. And they're caring for someone else. And that also reduces their anxiety at the same time. Mm -hmm. That sits really nicely with the ways of well-being framework, yeah. which is about giving and sharing. And, and, and that's, that's really empowering for children mm -hmm. because it gives them a, a, a level of control at a time where they feel like they don't have any control because yeah. everything's stopping. Yeah. So being acting in the world is very important there. Yeah. So I just wanted to talk briefly about educators. Yeah who, at this time when we're recording this, we still have um, early childhood settings open and educators doing what I consider to be an amazing job and taking an amazing role right now that really cannot be praised enough. Um, first of all, to be in place supporting um, mm -hmm. children and supporting families and also sometimes doing that um, with their own kids. And their own children who might be at home. That's right. So what, what about um, educators? What are some some really practical things? You touched on that, Catherine, but some really practical things that educators can do to support children at this time when they're, when they're in their early childhood settings. I think one of the things that we need to recognise is this is coming off the back of the bushfires. So 
Um, educators are already really focused on trying to re-establish a sense of security and uh, normalcy. Safety. And safety mm. and routine yep. within, their, within their service. And I, I think about a lot of what will help children and families now is really what's typical of high-quality practice. Mm -hmm. So it's really valuing that, that relational pedagogy and developing those safe and responsive relationships. It's around our, our connections with families are critical at times like this in terms of establishing those communications. But I think it's also around other kinds of practices that happen within that early childhood context. So play becomes so critical at, at times of stress because play is such an important platform for children to actually work through their feelings and their emotions and their understandings. But even more important than that, as adults, it provides us with a window into children's understandings of situations. Yeah. Uh, look at keeping routines to um, typical routines because children take great comfort from the familiar. Mm -hmm. and, and we're all looking for what is our new normal. Mm -hmm. And, and when we're setting routines, it's about giving children a voice in what those routines look like. So giving them some, some sense of control. And I think that's really important. And, and looking after one another as pedagogues and as educators, and that's critical. The strength of your team is really important for the functionality of what's happening within your service. Just to, on that question of routines and structures, I couldn't agree more. Um, and giving children a role, but also making it very clear and obvious. Um, there are certain uh, approaches where children actually have a representation of the day. And if you're in a moment where there's elevated stress or that you're in communities where there's a high level of disorganisation, or if you're trying to bring about a change, and you might need to bring about changes because of smaller eating groups already occurring in early childhood services, then finding a way to represent the circle time. Yeah, finding a way to represent mm. the day for mm. children is very powerful. So what we're doing at different times. It doesn't mean that children always need that, but but it can be very helpful. It's a great tool. And especially when there's more anxiety around, it provides a sense of more control over the environment, more they can manage their expectations and they know what they're gonna to need to do. And just touching on something that you said there, um, Mark, I think the other thing for educators is to be aware that children will be stressed and because of their lack of language, stress often manifests itself as, as behaviours or changes in behaviours. So it's being aware and a lookout for those shifts in behaviour. So a child might become more aggressive or they might be less responsive and withdraw socially or they may regress in skills, often at times of challenge, we see uh, challenges, uh, or at times of stress, we see challenges in terms of children's self-regulation. Yep. So they might need more prompting mm. yep. or more scaffolding or support. Mm. They might have difficulty um, paying attention or following instructions. So mm. it's it's really about being supportive and understanding of those changes. And as you say, maybe just pausing to reflect on what's happening and what that child is trying to or is inadvertently telling you as a result of that stress. So just pausing and, and understanding that that's what's happening and reflecting on it. So if it's developed, this can often be what's happening. So then we might see separation or cleanliness and, and the communication, like you said, is saying, 
you know, I'm looking for someone who I trust and, yeah. and someone to be. I guess hard sometimes for all parents and for educators who might have taken a child on a journey of yep. separating from their family and now they're, they're back there again. But I guess it's that strong feeling that it's okay, we can do all of that again and the world will change in a different way. So maybe just to sort of round this out and to um, finish on a, on a, a, well, I think it's been really, really positive. What are some of the tips you would give for doing some really, we might have children at home with their families yep. um, or we will continue to have children in early childhood settings with educators. So what are some joyful, stress alleviating activities to all do together that that will, you know, bring that sense of joy and playfulness? I, I, I like finishing off like that because I think it's really important to give ourselves permission to have fun mm-hmm. and for children. So it's about... I mean, this is an opportunity for families to reconnect and to slow down. So it's about having those uh, times where you're cooking in the Mm. kitchen or you're playing with children. I mean, there's so many opportunities to kind of engage and to dance and to be active and to spend time together, uh, to make up board games. Yep. I think uh, finding things that we can do together is the key. I have children from 15 to 4 years of age, and that's quite a developmental sweet yeah. uh, we dance together that's fun uh, we oh, play it might be fun for you <laughs> we, we play uno together yeah. but we're but, doing board game of the yeah, week but, but I'll say this um, it, you know it can't be all the time right? so again because we're actually going through this at the moment having, having the structure in place and having those times okay when it's time to stop socialising with your friends to stop you know playing to come together, it's together time. Mm-hmm. That, demar- that demarcates a space. Mm-hmm. And in that space, people have permission to do something different. Mm-hmm. So, so creating the space yeah. for that time is the first thing mm-hmm. that has to happen. And getting agreement around that's what we're going to do in this time. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be very long, but to know that it's there and that it's part of it and it's something we can look mm-hmm. forward to is really very important. Maybe some alone time as well. Absolutely. required yeah. in a home. With all ages, and yep. it's time to, and, that, and this could be a good time to learn how to be on your own yep. in, with other people. Yep. So that could be something. And I love the idea of baking some some biscuits or yeah. whatever. That is something yeah. that children are acting and they're or reading out loud ways. again. Yeah, yeah, just children are a bit older, just going back to out loud yeah. reading. Yeah. Sharing your favourite books from childhood. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else that you would um, sort of? Uh, commit to educators yep. or to parents? Yeah, it, um, with so so many people are digitally enabled these days, right across society actually, um, handheld devices. Making things for other people and putting them up online. So you might have a cousin who can't visit or something like that, so you make a message or my children once did a video series which I'm thinking of rejuvenating. You remember the Deadly 60 or whatever? They, there used to be a nature documentary, Deadly Deadly 50 or oh, something right, like yeah, that. Right. Yeah, so, so they made their own version of it, oh, you know, right. which was you know, like the Deadly 4 or something. Oh, and so it was stuffed animals and they, they went all David Attenborough and they made a little documentary and then put it up online and sent it to their cousin. Mm-hmm. So doing things like that to connect them with their wider family group mm-hmm. or their wider social group, I think that's really fun and you're learning while you do that as mm-hmm. well. And you can do a lot of that on a device. You can edit a simple video on a device. Mm. You, there are online videos of how to do it. So 
it's sure it's device time, but it's not device time as you yeah. know it. It's yeah. actually about exactly. reaching out and communicating yeah. and learning new skills, and I think that's pretty good fun. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, that idea of not letting the physical isolation translate to social isolation. Yeah. So it's being really intentional and active around continuing those connections. One of our, our very dear family friends, it was her daughter's birthday yesterday, she had to cancel the birthday party. So all of the people that were coming to the uh, birthday party connected in a Zoom party room. Yeah. Zoom party room. <laughs> right. Connected that way. Yeah. Yeah. Very different, but yeah. some great connections. Absolutely. Okay, well that was wonderful. Thanks, Catherine, and thanks, Mark. Pleasure. Thank you. So I'm talking with Dr. Lynn Cronin, who is a lecturer in the early years and has a focus on children's transition to school. But can you start by telling us about your uh, original research that you did with regard to children transitioning from early childhood environments or families to, to school? Yes, okay, Leanne, I'll um, go back to a few years ago. It, it, I guess it all started when I was a primary school teacher. I taught kindergarten for many years and that's where my interest really began in transition to school because I saw these little people come in and some of them were having a wonderful experience and others not so much. So I decided to look into it and I tracked seven little children from the Early Childhood Centre and followed them. So I did research around what they were doing, particularly in terms of literacy in their Early Childhood Centre. And we made digital stories and they got to have their say on what was important to them. So I really felt it was important to listen to their voice. And that was the crux, I guess, of my research then. And I tracked them into their first year in primary school mm. and then found out from them how they were going, what they thought about it. And we made digital stories again. And we got a really nice perspective on how it looked and how it was different. And I thought from that what sorts of things were beneficial, I guess, for children as they transitioned and what sort of things inhibited that smooth and successful transition for some of them. So from a child's perspective then, what, what makes for a successful transition to school? Mostly, there were a few things. One of them was being familiar with the environment and having that continuity of friends and relationships and I guess knowing what what they're in store for and feeling comfortable mm -hmm. in their new surroundings and feeling that they were confident to be able to participate in the learning that was on offer particularly my focus was on literacy as I said so they spoke about knowing the rules and the routines that was really important that they had that down um, what it was expected of them and, and that they felt confident in doing that and they didn't use those words so much but we interpreted their behaviors in that way and yeah having friendships children really say is the most important thing someone to play with to enjoy yes so from their early childhood settings perhaps or their community relationships they had someone who they could go to school with yes yeah friends and family members cousins and relatives that were at the school at the time featured mm -hmm. in in their stories so even if families 
for instance, move to a new area, which sometimes they do when they're transitioning to school, when their young children are transitioning to school. That's just kind of indicative for families to understand that it is those in relationships that are important for children, even if they're not automatically connected to their community, something for families and, and teachers to think about as they're transitioning. Yes. Yeah. yeah, relationships is, is a huge factor. Mm. And early childhood centres do that really well, build relationships with families. And the at that time of transition, we really try and promote that relationship then, including the school and the teachers, so there's continuity. And schools are doing it really well now too. They're tapping into what the children have done before they came to school and what sorts of interests they have and how they can support them and, and um, I guess, continue on with, with what they know and can do and to support that as a basis into their new learning at school. Mm. So, because as we know, so much happens before children go to school. Yes. So much yes. learning takes place yes. and that's great for schools to be recognising that and acknowledging Yes, that and tapping into play, I think, there as well. They're doing particularly well now or starting to think about to get those experiences build on those experiences mm. from um, preschool. So it is relationships make that happen. Mm. So for um, people and, and adults can often remember their transition to school and that sometimes it can be challenging. We've had children this year start school and then obviously um, because of COVID-19 have had to withdraw from the, the school environment. So we've got children who might have started school and now soon going back into the school environment for what probably feels like the first time again. So what guidance could you give around how families could ease that transition back into school and be talking with teachers about? Yes, I think you're right. Children will be feeling quite anxious about going back to school and many parents are feeling anxious for their children as well. And, and they haven't had a lot of time from the start of the year, particularly the little ones. It might be their first time at school and they're just starting to get used to those routines and the rules and all the expectations around schools and making new friends. And 10 or so weeks can seem like a lifetime when you're that age. So for parents, I think, to sit and chat with their, their little ones about all the things that they liked about school when they were there and remember fondly the friends that they made and talk about the teacher and the experiences that they can sort of try and remind them I guess to of all the, the enjoyable things about school mm -hmm. and tap into some of those school activities. Many teachers sent home packs of things to do and I feel that Parents need to be given permission not to beat themselves up over not being able to to complete all those types of activities, but just to do the sorts of things that they would have normally done as home experiences, reading and, and talking to their children, yeah, playing with them when they get the chance, those mm. sorts of things to ease them back into mm. those routines, I guess, and routines as well, thinking about how they can remember the routines and perhaps put some of them in place on those days when they're at home to slowly encourage those. Yeah. And what about um, people making decisions? I mean, people will have been thinking about that decision about sending 
their children to school if they're in an early childhood setting. Mm -hmm. And that is always a, um, it can be a difficult conversation where um, people feel that their child is not ready for school. Or, mm -hmm. And a lot of this decision making happens now. Perhaps their early childhood education has been disrupted mm -hmm. um, by the pandemic. And so what are the sorts of conversations that you feel um, families could have possibly with, with early childhood educators in terms of this, this um, movement into the school, formal schooling? Yes, I think they need to be... Readiness for school is such a sort of a muddy area because of what does it mean to be ready? And that depends on the context and it's different for every child. So having conversations with early childhood educators in their centres is a great idea because they know them very well in a, in a different context from the home. So getting their perspective and, but ultimately it comes down to what the parents think and what's best for them and what they think is best for them, their families and for their children. We would say social and emotional skills are really important for moving into school. So when children feel confident in themselves to to talk to peers, to talk to other adults, to have the ability to to make friends and feel comfortable in a setting outside the home. That's a really nice indicator that they might be ready for school. Other areas that parents worry about are academic skills, which are nice if children are interested and can and are interested in doing those formalised academic school skills. They help when children get to school, but they're not the most important thing. I think the most important thing is for children to feel comfortable and and valued in in the setting, and those sort of academic skills will come. So talking to the early childhood educators and getting an, an idea of what they think is is a nice idea for parents. But yeah, I think they have to sort of trust their instincts as well and mm. think what's best for my child, depending on what school that they're going to, how they think they're going to be ready, if they know people, if they have friends that are going. Back to the relationships the, again. Back to the relationships. Yeah. And I think, yeah, there's, there's lots of different things that they can consider. But if the child wants to go to school, they're looking forward to it, and mostly mm. they are, and it doesn't mean that they won't be anxious to some degree. Mm. But that's a nice indicator if they're ready as well, if they've mm. got friends and they're keen and they're talking about it. Mm. Yeah. So we pretty much always talk about school readiness. Mm. So what about ready schools? What does, a, what does the environment look like when a school is ready for a child who's moved through their, you know, their community and their early childhood education, possibly, hopefully. Um, what does a school look like when it's ready for a child? Yeah, that's a really nice way to put it because we don't want to put the onus on the children to be ready. We want the schools to be ready for whomever comes through that door. And that means they have to have wonderful transition programs in place where they have time to get to know the children, get to know their families and communicate and build that relationships with the families, which is not as easy as it, as it is in early childhood centres. So they have to really intentionally make that time and plan their transition programs around those opportunities to get to know children and families. So positive transition for children moving into schools would be one where they 
they feel children and the families feel really valued, feel that they what they say is important, feel that they're listened to, that they're able to tap into the teachers and the school leadership teams, you know, in a in a sensible way when mm. when they can. So I think there's um yeah, it's about communication and relationships and you want the children to feel like they belong. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so that again we get back to relationships. Yeah, don't it, we? it sounds like repetitive, but really that is Not at all. the most important <laughs> yeah. thing that they feel that you know, even if they can't do particular skills as some children do, that it's not a competitive environment, that that they feel that what they do matters mm. and that's important and they can contribute in that setting. Yeah, so putting your um, teacher hat on from your memory of being a, um, as someone receiving children into the school, mm. into the school environment, what does a great transition look like? Yes, I think a great transition is one, as I said, that has time, time to to spend getting to know the children. I know back many years ago when, when I transitioned children into school, not knowing what I know now is all about the learning. Come on, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to do this and do that in fun and interesting ways. But it just didn't suit everyone because not everyone was there yet. Mm-hmm. And what I didn't do was to make connections to what both children were coming to school with. Mm-hmm. So I think today teachers are really good at and working towards finding out what the children know and can do. And we've got some assessments that do that. But aside from those assessments in terms of literacy and numeracy, we want to find out what they're interested in, what what they like to do at home, what they're good at, and value that and make them feel that they are confident and competent Mm. at participating in school at the start. Mm. And I think sometimes when we rush into the academic side of school and there's pressures for teachers to do that at times, then that's when children feel that they're they're not confident. They're not confident at being able to do some of the things that they've been asked to do because they're not familiar with them and they're not used to doing them. Mm. And we don't want to see that push down into preschools to create those types of tensions to learn things that children are just not ready for and some are and and some aren't and developmentally that's very acceptable Mm. at that age. And it sounds like you're saying that um, families and early childhood teachers are a great resource for schools to be hearing about the interests and the, 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 the capacity of each child as well in there their relationships too. Yes, mm. that's right. And a good transition to school program for schools and early childhood centres is having those communications and passing on that information in really meaningful ways. Mm. Thank you. That was great. Thank you. Thanks, Ian. You have been listening to The Early Education Show. 
You can find show notes and links for this episode and all our other episodes at earlyeducationshow.com. The show is hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Liam McNicholas and produced by Liam McNicholas. The music is by Jazar at betterwithmusic.com. Please subscribe, rate and review the show in the Apple Podcast Store. It really helps others find the show. Get in touch with us at Early Edu Show on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email at earlyedushow at gmail.com. See you next time.